50 million people in the United States are hungry. Food lines stretch longer, 40 million face eviction, and these are all policy choices made by politicians in capitalist America. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's December 15th, 2020. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Walter Smolarek, Esther Ivarum, and our host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Nicole, thank you. Uh, Esther, Walter, thank you again for joining this important show. Uh, We know and we're going to talk about the fact that the Electoral College, yes, the Electoral College has finally determined who the next president will be, and that, of course, will be Joe Biden. We're going to talk a little bit about that and the reactions to the period before and then yesterday's Electoral College vote and what the Electoral College actually is. But I think it's appropriate that we start with an issue that most Americans, uh, well, let's put it this way. Let's start with an issue that at least 50 million Americans are consumed with, thinking about, dealing with, struggling with every day such that they wouldn't give a hoot about the Electoral College meeting yesterday. And I'm talking about hunger in America. 50 million people in this, the richest country in the world, that's the formulation that we're always spoon-fed. It's not the richest country in the world if you can't get food. It's not the richest country in the world for you and your family if you can't get food. But 50 million people are hungry And as we have said over and over again, hunger in America is not God-given. It's a policy choice by politicians. Nicole, I want to open with a short audio clip just to frame this discussion. It's from National Public Radio. It's from yesterday. The story came out the same day as the media was focused. Most of the media was focused on the Electoral College vote. But let's listen. A line of cars snakes around the block and then past the next block, farther than the eye can see. In each car, a person or a whole family is waiting patiently, inching forward minute after minute towards a full stomach. These lines outside food pantries are a common sight around the country right now. 50 million people in the U.S. could experience food insecurity by the end of this year. And with several federal aid programs set to run out in just days, many pantries fear they will run out of food, too. All right. 50 million people hungry. The government's doing nothing about it. Uh, Actually, let me correct myself. The government is doing worse than nothing. Here's a headline uh, from the Center for Budget and Policy Priority. President's 2021 budget would cut food assistance for millions and radically restructure SNAP, also known as food stamps. 
I'll read a couple of sentences, and then I want to go back to a follow-up clip from that NPR interview. President Trump's 2021 budget proposes to cut the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly food stamps, by more than $180 billion. That's cutting it, $180 billion, nearly 30% during the next decade by radically restructuring how benefits are delivered, taking SNAP away from millions of adults who are not working more than 20 hours a week and reducing benefits for many other households. Uh, This is gross. This is criminal. This is American capitalism working as uh, the the, uh, political officials who run it uh, want it to run. Uh, maybe with a with a few exceptions. Let's listen to the last part of that clip from NPR. Feeding America were the largest response to hunger in the charitable sector. But for every one meal our network provides, SNAP provides nine. So there really is nothing that can compare to the scope of assistance to people in this country than the SNAP program. So really increasing those benefits just a little bit during this time when grocery prices are spiking would go a long way to helping people. And Esther, we shouldn't have to like increase them just a little bit. I mean, if hunger is a policy choice and the government has enough money to bail out banks and corporations and hedge funds, which it did with the first um, fiscal stimulus program, about $5.5 trillion for the already rich, uh, certainly this government can do what it needs to do to make sure that every family has enough food. Well, this is just another example of not just the cruelty, but uh, just total abdication of what should be government's role to take care of its people. You remember last week we talked about how immigrants are actually being discouraged from applying for federal assistance for SNAP or other types of food assistance, because if they do, they will likely be denied a green card because of the Trump policies that will basically give you less of a chance of getting your green card if you show that you're in any way probable to use public assistance of any type. And so a lot of these lines that the clip is describing are immigrant families who cannot use the public assistance that they are entitled to, especially if they have citizen children and they are still not wanting to apply for the assistance that they are entitled to. Yeah, Walter, uh, Joe Biden is taking office now on January 20th, 2021. Uh, I know people uh, who are angry about the economic and social injustice in this country, including hunger. Uh, They're planning, and we are planning to be at the inauguration, uh, demanding that all all of those who are hungry be immediately attended to, that relief be given, that those who are facing eviction uh, no longer face eviction, that housing be treated as a human right, the same with health care. And immigrants must have full legal rights with everyone else. Uh, again, this has to be the struggle coming up. I, I completely agree with you. And and how else could any of these demands be won if not through struggle? I mean, certainly not through the goodwill um, the charitable, kind nature of the Biden administration. I mean, that's absolutely nonsense. The the Biden campaign slogan, the unofficial campaign slogan, and I think this really gets across the essence of what he stands for, is what he promised rich donors at a fundraiser, that nothing would fundamentally change. That's a direct quote. Nothing would fundamentally change 
if he becomes the president. I mean, Biden wants to be the president of back to normal, which means massive hunger, uh, enormous record numbers of deportations of of immigrants, like uh, what was taking place during the Obama administration, uh, bailouts for the big banks, legal impunity for the big banks and corporations. Uh, I mean, that's that's their default setting. And so the only thing that can possibly change the equation, can change the situation, uh, is the struggle of the people. Um, people going out into the streets to demonstrate, like especially like we saw over the summer, right, with the the nationwide uprising against racism, which completely changed public consciousness. I mean, there's so many different examples throughout history of this, and I think that's exactly what's going to be needed as the Biden administration immediately as the Biden administration takes office. Esther, let's go to the electoral college uh, again. We'll talk about what happened, but it's not just about what happened. There's all of these right-wing mobilizations led by Trump, but, you know, picked up by the Proud Boys and other organizations. You know, you can call yourself the Proud Boys, but uh, the way they looked on Saturday here in Washington, it looked like just old-style, Klan-style lynch mobs directed against uh, black people and other people, too, but especially directed against black people. Uh, We have right-wing resurgent fascist type mobilizations in Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, you know, there's going to be a struggle for social and economic justice, like what Walter was talking about, to, to deal with the issues of hunger, homelessness, the, the loss of health care, immigrant rights. There also has to be a struggle uh, against fascism in America because it's rearing its ugly head. Let's talk about the Electoral College and, and especially the collateral issues around it. And Esther, before we talk about recent developments, again, I think it's important to remind everyone that the Electoral College is a racist system. It was rooted in the system of slavery. Uh, Back at the time when it was formed, the populations in the North and the South were approximately equal in size, but roughly one third of those living in the South were held in bondage. They were enslaved people. Because of its considerable non-voting slave population, that region would have less clout under a popular vote system. The peculiar system that emerged was the Electoral College, and here it is, 2020, we still have it. It's a racist system. Yeah, so normally we think of the Electoral College as being this almost an afterthought in the normal American election. But now, in this election, it was just another fraught step in an abnormal election, really. Another step in what keen observers are calling a continued like, rolling coup, right? A rolling coup attempt by the Trump administration and the Republicans. And so in the rolling coup, this this field is constantly being extended. So, you know, it was thought that maybe the Electoral College would be this endpoint. Okay, everybody would calm down, take a deep breath. But now the Trumpists are calling... January 6th, the, the, the key point. And that's when Congress will assemble to count the Electoral College votes. So Monday's Electoral College vote is not even being considered, you know, the end point for these people who are continuing this effort. So in Michigan, the state capitol was shuttered in advance of the Electoral College vote. Um, because of these credible threats of violence. There was actual extra extra security in Wisconsin. Uh, In several states, a separate group of electors met, Republicans met, separate from the actual 
legal electors, and they they voted in their own slate of electors and voted for Trump. And they did this separate from the, the actual legal procedure. And so this happened in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, and, and actually in Arizona, the group that the Republicans that met actually sent a notarized document with their vote to the National Archives to actually like certify like this was Arizona's electoral vote. So this is an effort happening in the suites as well as in the streets like we saw here in D.C. over on Saturday uh, where there were four stabbings. There, there were four historically black churches vandalized their black lives matter signs torn down and burned in the street, you know, with like a howling mob, you know, it looked like a lynch mob. It looked like the scene of some type of like cross burning or something. And these, uh, proud boys groups were, you know, obviously coming to DC to repeat their performance from last month when they came looking for a fight and uh, there were several street brawls, like I said, people injured, police injured, uh, police assaulted. And uh, this w- this was repeated even worse in Olympia, Washington, where uh, someone was shot, an armed right wing uh, militia person or a protester shot a uh, someone from the left, perhaps uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter protester out and um and that was repeated from the previous weekend when there, someone was also shot in Olympia, Washington. And this is not something that is being held up and really highlighted by the media in terms of this rising mob violence by the right wing. And, you know, they just want to focus on um, the Biden um what's happening with the Biden transition team. But these these this is very serious. One thing, Nicole, that really struck me was the Proud Boys were this howling, racist, lynch mob type uh, mobilization. They weren't that big in number. And it and it took place all at the end of this pro-Trump rally, uh, the Stop the Steal rally here in Washington, D.C. last Saturday. Uh, but if, they, if the Proud Boys, who are like the Klan or like the Nazis, uh, racist, white supremacists, anti-Semites, uh, xenophobes, if they had initially and openly mobilized uh, to come to Washington, I think tens of thousands of Washingtonians, including a lot of young black people, would come out. And you'd see then that the Proud Boys are really not that big of a deal. But when it's just small groups able to to carry out mob attacks and let, and the police, by the way, well, some police may have been injured. It looked to me like the police were arresting the people who were uh, the, you know, the victims of the Proud Boys, that they were sort of stepping back. They were saying, come on, come on, stop it, guys, as people were, you know, 10, 20 people mobbing on one person, stomping them, almost killing them. Uh, Again, back in the 1980s, when when Reagan came in and there was a rise of KKK mobilization and violence back then, we had a slogan that we chanted everywhere, which was, Cops and the Klan work hand in hand. Now the Proud Boys go by a different uh, imprimatur, but you know that's the same type of mobilization. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, watching police pepper spray po- protesters, even jail support people who are out just to help. You know, when people got out of uh, out of jail after being arrested for 
being out and protesting. Um, even jail support family members who were there to get people out of jail were being um, tear gassed, but uh, much less tear gas on the on the Proud Boys. And even there were Proud Boys and police, you know, helping each other get tear gas out of their eyes. It's like, you know, very clearly these two groups working together, Proud Boys and cops only allowed in, in certain sections of uh, of the city in, in while we were watching all of these, I, I think ex- exactly right, as you said, lynch mobs roaming around the city and um, and attacking mostly black bystanders or protesters. One one in particular who you uh, mentioned a little bit, Brian, was attacked by this massive lynch mob and used a knife in defense, was kicked, was stomped, was beaten, um, and then he was arrested. I mean, really, you know, really, it just really shows the, the groups that are working together. Yeah. And he he took out his knife when he was being surrounded by this white racist mob. He kept the knife to this to his side. He was just basically saying he wasn't threatening anybody. But he was like, hey, I'm I have a knife. They swarmed him. One proud boy was stabbed, but it looked like a, a mob. It looked like 20 people pounding him, stomping him. And again, the cops finally show up and they say, stop, stop, meaning, you know, pleading with the Proud Boys to, quote, stop. Like, can you imagine if if it was left wing people doing something like that? And then finally, they clear the place and they arrest him. They arrest the victim. And guess what, everybody? Uh, you have a right to self-defense. You have a legal right to self-defense. If you have people threatening you, uh, trying to kill you, trying to hurt you, you have a right to self-defense. Again, unconscionable behavior by the Metropolitan Police Department uh, here in Washington, D.C. Anyway, again, we're going to fight for housing. We're going to fight to end hunger. We're going to fight for universal health care for all. We're going to fight for immigrant rights. And we're also going to mobilize to stand against fascism, which is, uh, let's say, American uh, as American as apple pie, long, long, deep roots in white supremacy. Let's go to another story. Uh, This is about the role of some of the Clinton appointees in in the Clinton cabinet. And this very interesting case, uh, Nicole, regarding the commutation of a drug dealer on the last day of Clinton, of the Clinton administration, and the, the gross hypocrisy. Remember, everybody, it was during the 1990s, Joe Biden in the Senate, the Clintons, they were the ones who created this new system, this advanced, expanded system of mass incarceration, all the mandatory minimums, uh, all the the new laws that target people who were using crack or were addicted to crack, uh, the racist laws that sent hundreds of thousands of, of young black people to prison. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, in, as a favor to their rich buddy, donor, drug dealer, they got Clinton to commute his sentence. Let's talk about the facts. So, Brian, the facts of the case are Carlos Vignali Jr. was sent to prison for 15 years for trafficking cocaine. It was a huge, huge drug bust. There were a, a number of people who were convicted with him. Um, a lot of his co-defendants were black. Carlos Vignali Jr.'s father, when he was convicted, began making very large campaign donations to California politicians. This is all out in California and hosting a lot of fundraisers. He gave $17,000 to various campaigns of now California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, who has been nominated now to be part of Biden's team. And Becerra then wrote to the White House at the time and said, oh, Carlos Vignali's parents are, quote unquote, dear friends. 
and quote unquote, solid, upstanding members of the Los Angeles community. And then he made a series of phone calls to top administration officials, including to directly to the White House counsel's office the day before Clinton left office to ask about how the case was going for this one man's commutation. His dad, this is Horatio Vignali, this is the father of the man who was com- whose sentence was commuted, also had dinner with Hugh Rodham, Hillary Clinton's brother, so therefore Bill Clinton's brother-in-law, um, as an initial consultation and charged, and Rodham charged Horatio $4,200 receipts that the, that the House investigation at the time showed was that Horatio Vignali in the end paid Hugh Rodham $200,000 three days after Carlos Vignali Jr., his son, received the commutation. And then Hugh Rodham deposited the funds next day. So what we're seeing here, let me just sum this up for people. What we're seeing here is that the one guy who has the connections, who has the money to be able to get out of prison, is able to do so on Bill Clinton's last day in office. He commutes this man while his black co-defendants remained in jail and continued to serve long terms. And like you said, Brian, these are these are people, Clinton and Biden, were the people who created these mandatory minimums. Exactly. And and Esther, so many people, so many people are still in jail because of crack convictions, but they just didn't have the $200,000 to give to Hugh Rodham, Hillary's brother, uh, or the attorney general in California when he was running for office. They're just, well, working class poor people. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be surprised at this because there was a change in the law that reduced the disparity between convictions for powder cocaine and for crack cocaine. And so uh, many of us probably assume that the people locked up for these crack convictions were uh, given you know, some type of early release, or they were also given some kind of dispensation because their convictions were so out of line with with the, with the crime, uh, and they they weren't in line with the very light treatment given to people with uh, for powder cocaine convictions. During Obama's time in office, um, he pushed forward the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the disparity from what it had been 100 to 1, but they only reduced the disparity down to 18 to 1. So, and of course, that didn't affect state laws either, where the majority of people are still serving, are still rotting in prison. And like you said, it didn't affect people who were already rotting in prison. It only affected the sentences of people um, after the date the bill was signed. Then uh, when Trump came into office, he helped push through the First Step Act, which did make this retroactive. But these kinds of policies, because they're in this system, in this U.S. racist capitalist system, there are enormous barriers. And so there's been a, a huge number of barriers that people have had to try to get their sentences reduced. And e- so again, even though people are now allowed to apply to try to get their sentences reduced, it's up to the judge who initially sentenced the person in the case. The New York Times profiled somebody who talked about his judge who, quote unquote, rarely, if ever, grants motions for resentencing in First Step Act cases. So in other words, you have to be, again, if you're poor and you can't pay your way out, you have to be lucky enough to have a judge who's interested in resentencing something that judges don't like doing because it looks like they were wrong. Um, you have to have somebody who's interested in doing that. There's no actual, you know, like real and clear relief. And now you have all these black and brown bodies, bodies of poor people filling up these private prisons. So there's this added incentive for this system to keep these people locked up so these prisons can make money off of them. They're, they're worth more locked up to somebody. 
yeah, prison and incarceration, it's a big business. It's American capitalism. Walter, let's go on to another story. Tom Vilsack has been designated to return to his cabinet position as Secretary of Agriculture. Uh, This was a disappointment for uh, progressive people who were uh, fighting for Representative Marsha Fudge uh, to be the candidate. Again, there's a lot of a lot of issues here. There's the Shirley Sherrod case, but the the big picture here is what is the function of the Department of Agriculture? Is it to make sure that Americans and people in this country get food, that it alleviates hunger, or is it uh, designed as one more instrument for the one percent? of capitalist agribusiness. Let's talk about this nomination. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very important point. The uh, nomination of Tom Vilsack to head the Department of Agriculture is definitely an indicator that Joe Biden views it as essentially just another um, a- another source of income for, for big agribusiness corporations like Monsanto. Um, you know, the uh, the nomination of Vilsack, there's there's so many different issues there. What what he was doing before the nomination, right? So he was the agriculture secretary during uh, Obama's presidency for all eight years. And then after leaving the White House, he got a job as the head of the US Dairy Export Council, you know, this this corporate agribusiness lobbying um lobbying organization. So this classic corporate revolving door um, you know, job plan where and, and he got paid uh, about a million dollars in in that role that was his salary. So um Vilsack while he was the head of the Department of Agriculture made many rule changes changes to regulations that uh were demanded by the agribusiness industry uh related to gen- GMOs genetically modified organisms um you know different environmental standards that were you know eating into the profits of the big corporations. Um, he's he's their guy, right? He's agribusiness's representative. Um, and the, uh, I mean, you mentioned the Shirley Sherrod case. That's that's also very important here. Shirley Sherrod was a, a longtime civil rights activist, a black woman in Georgia who was um, in charge of a, of a USDA, Department of Agriculture, um, rural development office. Um, she was attacked by Breitbart News, the, this extreme right-wing disgusting outlet. Her uh, comments at an NAACP event were, were selectively edited. And and Vilsack fired her. I mean, Vilsack totally threw her under the bus, did not stand up to Breitbart and the racist far right. Uh, he was just like, okay, Shirley Sherrod, you're fired. Let's let's try to make this controversy go away. And and they actually later had to go back and, and apologize to, to Shirley Sherrod after um, the extent to which her words were manipulated was was revealed, but I mean it really shows who he is. Um, and I mean, if you look at the the big picture of racism in agriculture, um, Vilsack bragged about how he was uh, responsible for you know this renaissance in black farming uh, based on these uh, figures, this data from the 2012 Census of Agriculture. But later on, that turned out to be a complete manipulation. I mean, those numbers were, were essentially fraudulent. And in fact, uh, black farmers got far, far less than uh, you know their proportionate share of assistance loans from, from the Department of Agriculture under Vilsack's tenure too. So many reasons why this is a terrible choice. Yeah, I think, and, and Nicole, I want to expand on this issue a little bit about racism in the Department of Agriculture and farming. Uh, for, our, for our listeners, just to give some additional history to this, uh, back in the 1930s, when the Social Security Act was 
was passed in 1935, such that people who were beyond working age or who could retire and not be plunged into absolute starvation. When, when the Social Security Act was adopted, there was a waiver, there was an exemption. It, it, uh, it exempted uh, people working in domestic work and people working in agriculture. Now, of course, this was Roosevelt placating the right-wing racist white supremacist part of the Democratic Party in the South. And so that was the trade-off. They would allow expanded benefits as long as they didn't go to black people. And so black people were cut, a huge part of the black population did not get social security uh, and other benefits that were that white people got in the 1930s. That was the trade-off. Black people uh, were in agriculture disproportionately. Of course, there was the post- World War II migration and pre-World War II migration to the North and to industrial jobs in Northern cities. But here we have the Department of Agriculture and the federal government still uh, employing systematic racism against black farmers, black people in agriculture. According to a really well-researched analysis, actually, the USDA and the policies emanating from the USDA are pretty significantly responsible for all of what you just talked about in in terms of driving Black people out of farming almost entirely. Black farmers lost around 90% of the land they owned between 1910 and 1997. 90%. During that same time, white farmers lost about 2%. I mean, just huge, huge numbers. So this predates Vilsack in some ways, but Vilsack could have done a lot of things, could have chosen to do a lot of things. And instead, what he did Um, Instead of extending loans uh, more often to black farmers, he extended loans less often to black farmers, even then under the George W. Bush administration, less than George W. Bush's administration. He also, um, while he was heading up the USDA, the USDA foreclosed on black farmers who had had discrimination complaints that had been verified, discrimination against not being able to get the lending that they needed or other things such that they were then foreclosed on. Again, this is you know, while these complaints were already being verified and already in, in the process. I want to turn to our final story, uh, Esther. Let's, uh, I want Walter to jump in here too, but Esther, we'll turn to you real quick. Uh, you know, the, the United States spends more on the military than any other country in the world. In fact, more than the next nine largest military spending countries in the world. If you look at the U.S. military budget, it's, uh, it's, about five times greater than the Chinese military budget. And uh, when you look at Russia's military budget, the U.S. spends, the U.S., the new U.S. military budget, the official one, is about $720 billion. Uh, the Russian military budget is around $60 billion. So 10 times more, more than 10 times more than the Russians. And yet we have, as we've been discussing, 50 million people hungry, Anyway, the stimulus, uh, the stimulus always seems to be for either Wall Street bankers, Wall Street hedge funds, biggest corporations, or the armaments industry. Uh, we have an odd conservative liberal combination, Bernie Sanders and Senator Hawley from Missouri, uh, who are standing uh, together in Congress demanding that there be a uh, uh, a stimulus checks di- directly to families. Anyway, let's talk about the difference, the the disparity, defense spending, uh, spending for human beings. Well, yes, Brian, you mentioned that $740 billion passed for defense, which is an increase 
I think by $2 billion over what they passed last year. At the same time, Congress has not seen fit to pass what was called the HEROES Act in May, which would have provided continued unemployment benefits, aid for small businesses, aid for our post office, which is not being given the same benefit as these large Wall Street corporations in terms of support. And, you know, probably no public agency is more used than the post office. And this act hasn't been passed by Congress. And in the, the latest iteration, Congress is basically s- separating out um, a package that is well below a trillion dollars that will cut unemployment benefits to an extra $300 a month down from the $600 a month that people were getting. It will give some relief to small businesses, but it will not do nearly enough for Americans. And they're passing it so late, if it does pass, that there still will be a gap between when people's benefits run out the day after Christmas to when states can re-up and start these programs again. And so people are still facing uh, hunger that we talked about earlier in the show. They're still facing the moratorium on evictions ending for millions, tens of millions of people. Uh, they're still facing just not enough money to make up for the back money that people will still owe as renters or on their mortgage if they, they may lose their homes. And so they stripped out a separate part Uh, of another piece of legislation that will go ahead and give corporations this shield for liability. You know, even if they've, uh, you know, mistreated people during the pandemic and caused them to be sick or even die, Um, you know, under this proposal, corporations will still get the shield and, but states will get some additional aid because states and municipalities have been uh, severely, damaged in terms of not receiving any revenue during this pandemic, decreased revenue from taxes and other types of things that they get normally without their economies being shut down. And then finally, as you mentioned, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri have come together to at least try to ensure that Americans get this another round of those $1,200 checks $1,200 for an individual, $2,400 for a couple, and then $500 for each child. Because right now, uh, as it stands, even if this very paltry legislation passes, people won't really see the effects till next late um, as in a, for several weeks, perhaps in the new year. Walter, we're going to give you the last word here. Uh, just for our audience to know, on Thursday, the Thursday uh, edition of the socialist program, which is called The Real Story. We do a deep dive with uh, Lee Camp about U.S. military spending, U.S. militarism, its role in American capitalism. Uh, it's an interesting show. It's historical. It brings you uh, important facts that are really, if they're being presented at all in the mainstream media, uh, certainly not highlighted. But Walter, uh, I'm going to give you the final word here on the failure of the government to provide stimulus a stimulus program such that uh, millions of workers can go on with their lives, not face eviction, not face hunger, not lose their health care. But meanwhile, with almost unanimity, 
uh, the same Congress. It's not just the Trump Republicans. It's the Democrats, too, um, looting the national treasury for the armaments industry. Well, I think it's a much better indicator than what the politicians say uh, of of what their true intentions are. I mean, look at what they do with this these vast sums of money that they have control over, and and that's how you can find out what their true objectives, priorities are. And it's to enrich their friends in the military industrial complex. It's to enrich their friends and donors. That's that's important. Campaign donors on on Wall Street and in corporate boardrooms. That's who they truly care about. I mean, that's that's actually their function in society is to uphold those interests. And to the extent that they pass laws and fund programs that meet people's needs, it's it's purely a function of the pressure placed upon them by the people's movements. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We're going to continue, of course, uh, this conversation about military spending versus what people, human beings actually need. We'll do that tomorrow in our regular weekly segment with Professor Richard Wolf. Uh, We can only continue to keep bringing you this kind of programming because of the support from you, the audience. Uh, We depend on our subscribers. Please go to the Socialist Program at patreon.com and and subscribe to the show and listen to it, of course, on different podcast platforms and tell your friends about it. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.